0: The the reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me Holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it, and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Amen.
1: A few years ago now, Liz and I went to visit the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust at Slimbridge in Gloucestershire. And whilst we were there, we came across a sculpture by Kathleen Scott, which had originally been made as a war memorial for her son's school at the end of the 1914-18 World War. The sculpture is of a young boy standing on tiptoe with his arm raised as As if volunteering to kind of, you know, do something in assembly or something like that. And the text at the base of the sculpture reads uh, a quote from Isaiah's reading. uh, Here am I, send me. The implication, of course, on a war memorial is clear. He is volunteering to go to war, not to be blackboard monitor. And underneath the text is a list of 38 names, recording those from the Downs School who died in the First World War. And whilst the sculpture brilliantly captures the tragedy of war, evoking the innocence of childhood on the verge of abruptly giving way to the irrevocable tragedy of the trenches. As a piece of biblical exegesis, I think it is somewhat wide of the mark. As we have already heard, the quote comes from the book of Isaiah, where the prophet hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And responds, here am I, send me. And to take these words of the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah, and to use them in the context of sending young men in their tens of thousands to their horrific deaths in the trenches is, I think, to take them a long way from their original context. And I balk at the implication that those who go to fight for their country do so in response to God's summons and call, not for king and country, but for God, and that they are therefore fighting on God's behalf. Last Sunday we celebrated the two-minute silence at the start of our worship and on Wednesday many of us will have observed it again as part of the commemorations of Remembrance Day. And there's something I need to make very clear at this point. I've said it before and I will say it again. I have nothing but respect for the courage and cost paid by those who have given their lives fighting for their country. I treasure the story of my own grandfather who died in the Second World War whilst guarding the transatlantic convoys. But when texts like here am I, send me, are used to add divine justification to the sending of men and women, either to their own deaths or to inflict death on others, then I think we have something of a problem. Scripture has all too often been used to justify the moral or ethical positions of those in power, to sweeten the bitter pill that the population are asked to swallow, or to defend the status quo against those radical voices who might question the necessity of whatever course of action is being proposed in the first place. The propaganda machine, which appropriates biblical passages such as this, is an essential part of the functioning of the state as it seeks by any means necessary to bring as many people as possible into line with the proposed course of action and of course our passage from this morning from Isaiah is not the only text to have been used in this way just think of Jesus prophetic words about the cross no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends This saying, usually in its King James and more masculine form of greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This appears on war memorials, the length and breadth of the country with the names of those who have perished listed beneath it. And again, the implication is clear. The sacrifice given, the sacrifice of life faced by those who have died fighting for their country is a sacrifice to be compared with nothing less than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Again the death and destruction and desolation of warfare is sanitized by the comforting thoughts that those who have fought and died have done so at no less than the instigation and call of Jesus in fulfillment of nothing less than his personal command. Sometimes as Christians We are too easily manipulated into thinking that our people are God's people and that what our people do is what God wants them to do. This is the fallacy of Christendom. And we still fall into the trap. Tom Wright puts it rather well. He says the easy identification of our side with God's side has been a major problem ever since Christianity became the official religion of the Roman state in the fourth century. Ironically, as Western Europe has become less and less Christian in terms of its practices, its leaders seem to have made this identification more and more so that both sides in the major world wars of the 20th century were staffed by Christian chaplains praying for their side's victory. That's Tom Wright, former Bishop of Durham. Or well, so this morning, as we engage with the story of the call of Isaiah, I wonder what we can discover about the nature of God and about what it is that God calls people to. The golden rule for avoiding misuse of biblical texts is to begin by putting them in context. Again, it's been said before, and I'll probably say it again, that a text without a context is a con. So we need to know That the part of Isaiah we're reading today was written in the latter part of the 8th century BC. For many decades there had been a period of relative peace for Israel which uh, had split some centuries earlier into a northern and southern kingdoms. But by the mid 8th century that period of peace was once again under threat and it was clear that the Assyrian empire was on the rise. And by the time of Isaiah, the southern kingdom based in Jerusalem had already become a vassal state of Assyria. And then the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. So we're still more than a century here before the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom, taking the people of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. And although the later parts of the book of Isaiah do cover that period, We need to remember that this early story of the call of Isaiah is taking place in the midst of the political turmoil caused by the threat of the Assyrians. This text from Isaiah is one of the earliest examples we have of the genre that comes to be known as Jewish apocalyptic literature. We meet this in other Old Testament texts such as Ezekiel and Daniel, and of course in New Testament texts such as Mark chapter 13 or the book of Revelation, which gives it the name apocalyptic. And the thing to understand about this apocalyptic material is that it is always cast as a vision that unveils a deeper spiritual reality that lies behind the observable reality. It's unveiling the way God sees the world. And when the ancient Israelites pictured God, they imagined God as male seated, a king seated on a throne in heaven, surrounded by seraphim and cherubim, holding court over the affairs of the earth. In other words, they imagined God looking like a heavenly version of an earthly king surrounded by courtiers and attendants, ready to dispense justice and fight for his people if needed. The Israelites also had a firm belief that God was holy, so holy that his glory could not be seen by sinful human eyes. So within the apocalyptic tradition, with its uh, visions of heaven and people kind of going up into heaven, there emerged stories where the person receiving the vision was shown around by a kind of heavenly tour guide who would mediate between them and God and people like Enoch functioned in this regard. But with Isaiah's vision, it's different. You see, he's not shown round by anyone, not an angel or an ascended human. He just rather suddenly finds himself in the heavenly throne room, unexpectedly face to face with God a bit like Moses going up the mountain and suddenly meeting God. And it's immediately clear that God is just as holy as ever with the creatures round the throne singing their holy, holy, holy song to make the point that God's holiness is not in any way in doubt. So how wonders, Isaiah, can it be that he, a man of unclean lips, can find himself looking directly at God? And the first thing Isaiah has to learn is that despite him seeing himself as unclean, God sees him as clean. His personal sense of unrighteousness does not extend to God's opinion of him. And I wonder how many of us need to hear this too. How often do we cast judgment on ourselves? Ruling ourselves out of God's presence or favour. When in fact, God is longing for us to see ourselves as heaven sees us. For us to realise that we are, in God's eyes, entirely worthy of love and acceptance. But God's call is not simply to be in God's presence, it's a call to prophesy, to speak for God. And for this, Isaiah needs an act of commissioning. So in a liturgical act that echoes the mouth purification rituals of other ancient Mesopotamian religions, Isaiah's mouth is touched with a burning coal from the brazier before God's throne on which the incense is burned. In the book of Revelation, the incense from the altar is revealed to be the prayers of the faithful rising before God. And it may be that something similar is intended here as Isaiah is commissioned to speak and pray. And the people to whom he is called to speak are a nation who will have to learn lessons about righteousness the hard way. The sweep of the book of Isaiah is going to take us from the Assyrian threat through to the Assyrian conquering of the north through to the Babylonian conquering and destruction of the south, the wrecking of the temple, the period of exile in Babylon. And only at the end of all that will they get back to their land and a chance to rebuild their temple. This is the context that Isaiah will have to speak through. And if Isaiah thought he was unclean, but God called him clean, Israel, at this point, has it the other way around. They believe they are righteous, but actually they're under judgment and they're on their way to exile. And the book of Isaiah will track their journey through judgment and exile to forgiveness and restoration. And along the way, they will discover that the nature of God is to draw alongside those who suffer. But I find myself wondering how often Religious institutions in our world still believe that they are righteous when actually they stand under judgment. I'm thinking, for example, of those national churches through the 20th century that supported oppressive regimes such as communism or fascism. Or more recently, what about the evangelical churches' zeal for Trump? or even closer to home, our own religious obsessions in this country with moral superiority and judgment on sin, and in some cases a misplaced desire to drum up feelings of persecution and victimhood, rather than proclaiming loving inclusion and forgiveness. Too often the churches of our nation spend more time proclaiming themselves righteous and others unclean, than they do helping people discover the deeper spiritual reality that they are acceptable to and loved by God. The legal action against lockdown restrictions taken by some church leaders this week under the banner of Christian concern is I think an example of this entirely misplaced self-righteousness. As churches, we should be putting others first and ourselves last always seeking to act in the public good, rather than complaining about supposed infringements of our rights. Similarly, I might mention the frequent justification churches have offered for war, often falling under the banner of just war theory. And I might conclude that whilst one can always make a case for staying the hand of an aggressor, There are nonetheless far, far too many examples of Christian collusion with violence. Which brings me back to the examples of biblical exegesis with which we started. Isaiah's call is twofold. Firstly, it is a call to enter the presence of God and discover something new about how God sees him. And then secondly, it is a call to speak that truth to proclaim God's word to his time, his place and his people. And I wonder if we can share Isaiah's calling. Can we discover for ourselves something new this morning about how the God of holiness and love sees us? Can we hear that we are deeply loved and deeply acceptable to God? And then can we also hear the call to action? not to take up arms against God's enemies, but to be those who faithfully proclaim God's love and God's acceptance, especially to those who are themselves currently unable to perceive the awesome truth that God is for us, that God loves us, and that God has blotted our sins away and released us from our guilt. This is the gospel.
2: Amen.
3: Thank you very much for that, Simon. We're now going to have a few minutes of silence. In the meantime, I would like to ask all of our um, panelists today to unmute and uh, show your cams, and uh, then we can start the discussion after we uh, just take a little think. Does anyone have any initial thoughts of uh, what Simon told us today? Anyone want to start? I
2: I might respond on one of the political issues that Simon raised, which I thought was fascinating. The way in which the words of scripture have been used to uh, combine with national propaganda as a justification for fighting in wars made that point that those words that we read this morning had been used in the context of the First World War. I was also thinking that actually, spiritual and religious ideas are used in other contexts too, not just Christianity. Obviously, I'm particularly interested in Japan. And the idea that you were fighting for a spiritual sacred cause was used to motivate people to go to war, even When the kamikaze pilots flew to attack the Americans, they were told that they would meet the gods at the Yasakuni shrine at the end of their mission, which would end in death and immortality. And I'm also thinking about the way in which these kind of narratives are used in our own age, uh, particularly in the the US-China tension that we're experiencing. The sad thing is that if we do see another third world war, It's likely to be sparked off by the tension between the U.S. and China, and both sides are using propaganda. As Simon rightly mentioned, some of the American propaganda is mixed with Christian spiritual ideas. The propaganda is just as uh, emotive on the Chinese side in an atheist communist system. But again, it's seen as being a sacred duty to go and fight. I think this is a very relevant point that Simon made there.
3: Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Does anyone else have any uh, reflections?
4: Maybe on on the same point. Um, and first of all, thank you, Simon, for your profound sermon and Duncan for your uh, comments. I, I entirely agree with you. And I have just a couple of points that struck me when I listened to the sermon. Uh, the first is that this idea, again, of using... References to the Bible in particular to uh, celebrate the war effort, of course, is very old, but has been enormously increased by the First World War. Uh, it is also very recent. I mean, relying so heavily on direct quotations from the Bible to, um, in a way, uh, extol and, and celebrate. Uh, violence is a relatively recent phenomenon, and it emerged in a period in which this became more and more common across Europe, and not only in democratic systems, and perhaps this should make us even more, um, you know, um, dubious and, and skeptical uh, uh, towards this uh, kind of rhetoric. Uh, but but even there, um, it's, it's fascinating to see very often, poems and commemoration using that language and those ideas end up um, falling into potential contradictions or at least grappling with unresolved tensions. Um, I know there is a debate in in Britain, for example, about the the words and meaning of poems like I vow to be my country, which celebrates patriotism in, in a way which is problematic for many Christians. But even there, there there seems to be a tension, a a, a potential conflict between allegiances from from a Christian perspective, even in that deeply patriotic hymn, because eventually uh, the argument is that there are two countries. There is more than one country to to vow to. And and it always struck me the fact that the poem was originally called The Two Fatherlands. as if uh, from a Christian perspective, there is an inherent uh, contradiction between extreme nationalism and allegiance to God. And this should probably lead us to, to rethink uh, the whole meaning of those texts and the way we read them.
0: Well, uh, yes, um, and thank you, Simon. I mean, it was an incredibly stimulating and provocative sermon um, as well. Uh, oh dear, the themes of um, the God of holiness and love. Obviously, it was a terrifying vision for Isaiah, some sort of um, cosmic sonne-lumiere, I think. Um, very, very dramatic, very frightening, very terrifying, shattering. And... <clears throat> um, One of the things I think I noticed about the text is that um, to God's question, what will you do, that that sort of thing, um, he he was really as a volunteer. And he says, here am I, send me. He knows not where God will ask him to go or what he will be doing. It's this complete trust at this point following this revelation. And also, I think it consolidates to me this use of the word pilgrim and pilgrimage. We use this a lot today about faith. Um, You know, we're on life's pilgrimage. And it seems that most of these biblical prophets and patriarchs who we study um, don't have easy lives. And we've got parallels here with Job, who we looked at some weeks ago and obviously with the Lamentations of Jeremiah, um, they're not, it's not a comfortable life, and um, Isaiah experienced opposition, trials, persecutions, also had a pretty horrible end, we think. We're not sure, but if you want to go to the very end of the book uh, of, uh, of Isaiah, um, it is very revealing in lots of ways. Um, Also, the holy, 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 this threefold affirmation. Um, We see here, even the heavens are not pure in God's sight. There is this huge chasm, the separation, this gulf. And we saw this obviously in the hymn that we sang earlier. And I was just trying to think, is there another hymn that came instantly to mind or probably a worship song as well? And the first one that came to my mind was, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible. So we've got this further raft of distance, of separation here, in light, inaccessible, from our eyes. And what, how can we be holy in a way? What do we know about this holiness? And I can only think, uh, I was amused at one story when I was sort a young teenager that um, uh, a visiting minister asked once, how can we appear to reveal holy lives without looking as if we've been drenched in embalming fluid? And I've never quite forgotten that, and after the meeting there were a few of us teenage Boys, particularly, as a bit of We're trying to work out which of the older members of the congregation we thought had been particularly drenched in embalming fluid. But it raises the issue of holiness, and it's something obviously to go on. But the last thing I want to say is what an extraordinary book Isaiah is. And coming up to Christmas, oh dear, I was just thinking of the Handel's Messiah. Again, how much of that work comes from Isaiah? The chorus, surely he hath borne our sins and carried our sorrows. The chorus, by his stripes we are healed. Um, The um, solos, the people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. All very, very prophetic. And that epic verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 for unto us a child is born, which ends Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And I notice in the, um, the New King James Version of the Bible, in chapter 61, is subtitled The Good News of Our Salvation. So I think that there we see this whole link from Isaiah's prophecy, Uh, really culminating with the cross and the resurrection and it is the complete link.
1: Thanks, Philip that's really helpful. We'll come to Susan in just a second then take some comments from the chat and then I'll hand back over to Fifi. Um, The the textual history of the book of Isaiah is really interesting I didn't go into it in the sermon but scholars think that either he was an incredibly long-lived person like you know 150 years which is most unlikely or actually what we've got here are three books that have been edited together to make the book of Isaiah and they're often called 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah and 3rd Isaiah and probably 1st Isaiah is historic Isaiah who we meet in this morning's reading and he prophesies before the exile and then 2nd Isaiah is like what Isaiah would say to us in exile if Isaiah was still alive and that's where we get all the suffering servant passages as Israel as God's servant is suffering and Uh, The relationship between God and the suffering servant then becomes used by Christians to speak about appropriately as Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But in its original context, it's about exile. And then third Isaiah, uh, with all the restoration language, is probably uh, written again after the return to the land at the end of exile. But uh, I mean, you're absolutely right in tracing that trajectory and how certainly within the Christian tradition that then points to how we understand Jesus. I'm going to move on and ask Susan to come in with her reflections on the sermon.
5: Uh, Yeah. Hi. Um, I think the sermon in several different ways actually reminded me of something that I've kind of been thinking about this week and that I was discussing with a friend this week about what it means for us to be a Christian country. Um, And I think particularly like with the political side of it, when we talk about remembrance and how a lot of the like secular want for remembrance gets um, put on to the church particularly the Church of England Um, and how you then end up with like Church of England churches um, in my experience preaching something or saying things on Remembrance Sunday that any other Sunday of the year they wouldn't be saying Um, and and I find it frustrating I mean I've often ended up at these Church of England churches through scouts or even like my home Baptist church used to join with the village Church of England church on Remembrance Sunday um and there's a sense of you know you just we know that we maybe don't agree with this but we're quiet for this week because we've got all these other people here who we don't want to upset and um at the end of sermon sermon mentioned um in those who fatally proclaim god's love and that can be hard as, like on especially on remembrance sunday when you have lots of people there who definitely want something very specific from their remembrance sunday service but i i mean i know we're not a church, England church and we don't have that same responsibility but i i would really like it if i could go to a Remembrance Sunday service and have that like pacifist proclamation that I'd expect on other Sundays of the year. Um, And also in relation to Christmas and lockdown and what it means for it to be a Christian country that I may express my frustration uh, particularly around Remembrance Sunday of this having to be a Christian country and what responsibility that comes with. But actually, if I'm being honest, I do kind of like it because it works out practically well for me. Um, that, you know, the holidays in this country line up with the Christian holidays that I can have, you know, a bank holiday on Christmas Day to that allows me to go to church. Um, whereas otherwise, you know, I may very well, like if I'm at work, have to take the day off, like people of other religions do. Um and I don't really know where I'm going with this. It's just, it's like, what? and yeah, and then there's the other aspect of lockdown and being a Christian country, and this, you know, suing the government or whatever, because churches aren't allowed to stay open. Um, and, you know, the what is the social responsibility there? Um and how do you deal with people who see what it means to be a Christian country and what the Christian responsibility is in a different way? because there are some people who may very well say that that faithful proclamation of God's love includes keeping the churches open for people who want who want to be shown God's love during a lockdown when they may be struggling. And um, there's no real point here. This is just what I was thinking about during the sermon.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. So I'm going to read a few comments from the chat and then we'll have a hymn and then back to Fifi for the end of the service. Welcome back, Fifi. It's good you've got your internet connection back sorted again. Um, So uh, Jeff notes, we're exiting a few centuries of Christian marketing that first convince people of sin and then offer Jesus as a solution of that guilt. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, really important comment, I think, from Nigel here. The message of being acceptable to God is a vital one. Too many of us have been in churches where we are continually told that we're not acceptable to God, that we cannot come into God's presence unless we conform to the church's idea of perfection. And of course, none of us are perfect, yet always in the Bible it is God who reaches out to us and welcomes us in, and it's always other people like the Pharisees who try and keep us out. Uh, Peter notes the use of scripture to justify war uh, goes back at least to Oliver Cromwell. Um, uh, Other Nigel says I was pleased to hear this passage this morning um, a reaffirmation of my worth and the call thank you God who draws close and call and calls. Solomon says I'm struck by the fact that we limit ourselves to be judgmental of self and that and others and that we often create space of how God is thinking of us forgetting to understand that we are loved by God so we are yet faulty. Um, Veronica notes, when the infinite holiness of God chose to become flesh, all flesh was thereby made holy. As an Anabaptist, I don't believe there's any such thing as a Christian country. Absolutely, Veronica, completely agree with you on that one. Um, Liz, when hearing this passage, I am also reminded of Moses. When he was at the burning bush and his call to go speak to Pharaoh, his protest that he could not speak well. So God gives him the assistance of Aaron. In this passage, Isaiah proclaims that he has unclean lips and God's response is a burning coal to the lips. a kind of, hey, I make your lips clean. You are okay." I love this. God is so often very surprising, even in the Old Testament. For some of us that feel unable to speak, that doubt our abilities. This is God giving us a voice, God calling us, God saying we are okay and loved. I think many of us need to hear this. And uh, Julian says, some very interesting points on Simon's comment that I find myself wondering how often do religious institutions of our world believe that they're righteous? As well as our own denomination, I can recall the late Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs indicating that on his desert island, he would build two synagogues, one he would attend faithfully and the other, which he would not dream of attending. Yes, a need in plenty of situations for refusing to have an obsession with moral superiority and judgment on sin, rather than uh, inclusion and forgiveness, loving inclusion and forgiveness.
3: And we will now have our prayers of intercession with Tomaso.
4: Let us pray. Loving, and caring God we gather before you in a time of uncertainty and anxiety about the future as new restrictions are imposed upon us and societies all around the world wrestle with constraints having huge repercussions on human relationships and activities in so many fields May we fully realize the necessity of healing for communities as well as individuals whenever fractures and divisions emerge and different experiences of hardship, isolation and vulnerability threaten to pull us apart. May your message of universal inclusion guide our actions, and inform our thinking, especially in these days. We give thanks for the efforts of all those who are strengthening social cohesion through work and volunteering. For we all depend upon their commitment and willingness to serve the community while promoting the common good. We are especially grateful to those who are making the best use of their skills to meet the challenges we face, from illness to climate change, from poverty to social exclusion and insecurity. May we acknowledge that our lives are and will always be deeply affected by our ability to find common solutions to common problems, and therefore duly recognize the significance of our fellow citizens endeavor and daily sacrifices, even in less extraordinary times. We pray for all those who are negatively impacted by the present circumstances And especially for those who are more likely to lose faith in our capacity to care for one another, help one another and being present for one another in this burdensome period. May we find new ways to meet their needs and reach out to those who feel increasingly estranged, abandoned, or let down by our political and social institutions. For the kingdom of heaven is their kingdom too. We pray for our leaders as wisdom, kindness, and self-restraint by those holding office are essential to make our communities work properly and orderly in a constructive and positive manner. May we be spared unnecessary conflicts and tensions, having no purpose or consequence other than the erosion of public trust and the reopening of wounds among groups, factions and parties. Finally, we pray for ourselves. Loving God, help us receive and share your boundless love with others, mindful to the fact that your calling compels us to question and often challenge our earthly loyalties and allegiances, that your message transcends time and space, fixed boundaries and established roles. May we be able to embrace it with an open heart and a thoughtful mind, and demonstrate that the highest expression of devotion lies in the active pursuit of peace. Amen.
3: But may the Lord bless you and keep you in her loving embrace this week. Amen.